This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss the FBI and the role of the FBI in American democracy and the role of FBI-like organizations in democracies around the world. We're joined by a scholar and friend who has written a fantastic big new book on the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover in particular. Uh, This is Professor Beverly Gage. Uh, She's a professor at Yale University. Uh, She wrote a wonderful book uh, a few years ago called The Day Wall Street Exploded about uh, terrorism, actually, in 1920 uh, around Wall Street and around American politics. It connects to the story of anarchism, the story of financial change in the United States. And now she's written this uh, wonderful big new book, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, It's filled with so many insights about American history in various periods over the course of the last century. Bev, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here for uh, what I'm thinking of as this is not democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Or this is the challenge to democracy, right? Uh, Well, every week we try to deal with different challenges and see some optimistic historical lessons, and I'm sure you'll have many for us. Before we turn to our discussion with Professor Gage, uh, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What is your poem titled today, Zach? The Secret to Believing. Let's hear it. The truth is, we are all more dogs than men, and we have all followed indiscretion through the streets, wagging our tails and dragging the refuse of belief with us like mud. So it should be no wonder to recognize the same doggishness, the same puppy-eyed guilt in the faces of all the famous men, not in the portraits. There they have all been fixed. One must instead imagine each face in full, extending undeniably into the dimension of a soul. How then do we reckon with the man who read our mail and listened to you on the telephone as you spoke to me about dying for what you believe? Did he think you were speaking the truth and truly wish to see the world end one big firework, or did he know it was all bluffing and wish only to hear in your voice the kind of idealism that had, in him, already been shattered? The secret to believing is listening. Hmm. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is about trying to tackle the moral complexity of a figure like J. Edgar Hoover, but also of the, the strange nature of listening in on other people's conversations, especially people who are so who are so who are who are people of such conviction uh, and, and so dedicated to what they're doing, um, and and the contrast really between those two, uh, and also the contrast between what we believe and and how we actually feel. Is, is it strange to you that someone would spend a whole career doing this? It seems very strange, but then it's also, to, for me at least, in some ways very understandable how someone could be drawn to the to, to the inner workings uh, that, that, that no one else gets to see. Right. right. So, so, Bev, what drew you to write a book about someone who does this? <laughs> well, in some way, it's what historians who end up writing about a man like this do as well, uh, because a lot of what we're working out of in these documents are 
you know, things that the FBI gathered and listened in on. And uh, it's one of the dilemmas of being a historian who who uses intelligence files and police files is, you know, how much are, are, are you also um, listening in and in what ways do you do that effectively um, or responsibly, um, which uh, J. Edgar Hoover wrestled with a little bit himself, but not in the same ways. What drew me to writing about Hoover were some of the same things that I think you heard reflected in the poem, um, which is that he is a man of some real contradictions. And I saw that Hoover was a figure that in our own world tends to be a kind of one-dimensional villain. And in my reading of history, he was actually more complicated and more important than that. And so I thought both because there were a lot of great new files that opened up um, and because I wanted to tell a big sweeping story about the 20th century, he'd be a good subject. But he was interesting to me in his own right. And I thought that he was also really ripe for reinterpretation. Why did young Hoover, and you start the book, of course, with with Hoover at the beginning of his life and then his early meteor, meteor career rise. Um, how did he see the FBI fitting into American democracy? Well, young Hoover, we really do mean young Hoover. <laughs> he was born uh, in the late 19th century in Washington, D.C., and he went to work at the Justice Department straight out of law school and then never left. Right. Um, so he became head of the Bureau by the time he was 29. And the Bureau at that point was not a hugely uh, significant institution, but it had been through some pretty big scandals, surveillance scandals during the First World War, um, some even bigger civil liberties scandals during the first Red Scare in 1919 and 1920, and then a series of, you know, kind of classic Harding administration scandals, poker, whiskey, <laughs> bribery, the whole run of them. Uh, during Exactly. Uh, during the... Uh, the early 20s. Um, so when he came in as director at this very young age, um, he came in as a reformer, which is not something we really think about with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and in many ways as a kind of progressive reformer, as someone who believed in this new vision of uh, the democratic state, the liberal state that was going to need a whole new generation and a whole new wing of people who were experts, people who were nonpartisan servants to kind of complement uh, the work of democracy, right? These were some of the big ideas of the progressive era. And uh, in lots of ways, he was kind of a, a true believer in them. And in what ways do you think that his career uh, or 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 at least uh, his his success, if you could call it, as as head of the bureau, uh, reflects the importance. I think one an importance that we've forgotten, or that's easy to forget in these discussions of institutional knowledge of of someone who'd been there for so many decades. That was certainly the big source of his power um, for uh, listeners who are not absolutely familiar with J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, we mentioned this moment in 1924 that he becomes the head of the Bureau of Investigation. And then he just stays in that job for 48 more years <laughs> until he dies there in 1972. And so one of the big things that I wanted to figure out was how he built that power, um, how he had such longevity. And I think the easy answer, the sort of like popular Hollywood answer, which is that he you know, strong-armed and intimidated everyone, kept files on them. Um, there's some truth to that, especially in the later years. Uh, but he had this 
vast array of tools to use, everything from uh, who he hired at the Bureau, men a lot like him who were very loyal to him, to how he constructed the bureaucracy, to how he built a popular constituency, how he ran public relations, how he managed uh, his relationships with Congress and with the president. I mean, there's a whole array of other things that were really uh, critical to his ability to, to stay that long and to build this massive and powerful institution, essentially, you know, in his own image. I think that's a real contribution in the book because the stereotype is, yes, that he had secrets on powerful people and he blackmailed them. And there was some of that, but you show in a lot of detail uh, how he mastered the institution and he developed a cadre of loyal followers. And in a sense, they were experts, right? They were experts on policing, just as we develop expertise in health and medicine and in the academic world. He was, in essence, doing that. You call him a progressive in this sense, right? Yeah, I think he was a progressive in that sense. He believed in federal power. He believed in things like efficiency and expertise and professionalism and all of these sort of buzzwords of the progressive era and of what we end up really describing as the liberal state. And of course, the the kind of conundrum of J. Edgar Hoover is that he's this devout conservative at the same time. So on things like race and anti-communism and law and order and religion, he's this incredibly powerful, outspoken cultural figure. Uh, he is a hero to American conservatives, and he's kind of building the bureau in that conservative vision. So sort of the trick of the book is that he's using the tools of the liberal state to kind of build a, a conservative state while he's there. Um, and when you say, you know, what was his vision of democracy? On the one hand, we have uh, this expertise administrative state story. And then we, of course, have a story that's about democracy being constantly under threat right. and J. Edgar right. Hoover being the only one who can save it uh, from revolutionaries and right. others. And in fact, uh, violating many, many basic tenets of democracy um, right. in order to do it. Which is a dilemma we've talked about over many of our episodes, which is the, the effort to protect democracy, but often the mechanisms used undermine the very goal you're trying to protect. Um, it strikes me that this conservative state building is an important topic for us to spend a little time on because it is a, a discourse, it is a way of talking about things that we don't expect today. We expect conservatives to be anti-state. But then again, if one thinks about it, if one thinks about the Roosevelt, and the other Hoover, Herbert Hoover, and even Robert Taft. And then after World War II, someone like Robert Taft, Senator Robert Taft from Ohio, who could have been president if Eisenhower hadn't run. And for that matter, even Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, these are men of very conservative sensibility, it seems to me. But yet they were state builders. They believed in state institutions. Is it fair to put J. Edgar Hoover in that category, in that collection of individuals? I do think it's fair. And of course, what distinguishes Hoover from many of those people uh, is the fact that he wasn't an elected figure, right? So many, and you've talked about a, a variety of figures there, but I think, you know, what's really fascinating about Hoover is that he was an appointed official. Um, he built all of this power uh, sort of in the administrative wing of the state and that there's this enormous continuity um, in what he's able to do there. And that, you know, isn't... Uh, is if there are no parallels. There are figures like uh, Robert Moses, maybe. Sure. Um, who, or Henry Kissinger, even, right? Right, who managed, who managed to do that. But Hoover's kind of extraordinary for the 
uh, the amount of time and, and the amount of power that he amassed in that time. The argument that I think is often made for a Bob Moses or a Henry Kissinger, and it's a hard argument to make, but the argument that's often made is that someone needed to do this. Someone needed to create a national security structure. And you can say that with a heavy German accent or not, right? Someone needed <laughs> Do it, do it. To, <laughs> I'll avoid it now. <laughs> I'll never stop then. Uh, someone needed to create a highway system that connected the boroughs in New York, right? Uh, was Hoover right that we needed a federal police force? Because it strikes me uh, that one of the challenges the United States faced after the Civil War, something I've written a bit about, was that there were very, very few mechanisms by which the federal government could enforce the law. And so in a sense, was Hoover addressing that issue? Was he correct? Well, the original vision for the Bureau was not exactly law enforcement. It was what it says in the title, which was investigation. Um, And so the idea was that the federal government was getting all sorts of new duties. The Justice Department was getting all sorts of new duties. It got tired of borrowing people from other departments like the Treasury Department and said, we want our own investigators. Um, And that's where the Bureau came from uh, in the years before Hoover was there. But even in the 20s, when he came along, I think he had a very particular vision of a pretty small, white-collar investigative bureau. And so he himself was a little surprised by uh, both the expansion of the bureau and then the particular duties that they uh, that they came to adopt. And in that sense, right, uh, necessity and crisis became a lot of what uh, gave him his power. And he's a funny figure. He had lots of ideas that were totally consistent throughout his career. But then he had these moments where he's able to respond Mm, and pivot mm, and remake his mm. uh, bureaucracy starting in in the 30s in these critical moments. And where does the villainous image of J. Edgar Hoover come from? Where does that sort of looming sense about the FBI, uh, but also J. Edgar Hoover as an individual... So there were always some Hoover haters, uh, and they were mostly on the left uh, because he also hated the left and particularly people in the orbit of the Communist Party. Um, But one of the amazing things about uh, doing this research for me was the discovery of just how popular Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. how widely supported he was for most of his career. Uh, So in the 1950s, he's incredibly popular, even at the peak of the Red scare, where I think we might uh, be much more critical of him, Uh, you know, he's getting these popularity ratings in the 70s and 80s and 90 percentiles, right? I mean, he's a hugely popular figure all across the political spectrum. And so that really begins to change in the 60s and then into the early 70s up to the moment of his death. Um, And again, it's in the 60s, it's leftists and liberals who turn on him, uh, largely because of the things that he's doing to the civil rights movement, his criticisms of the anti-war movement, um, some knowledge that begins to come out about the details of that. Um, Then he died in 72. And in 75 and 76, you get this thing called the Church Committee, um, which investigated the whole intelligence establishment, including the FBI, exposed many, many misdeeds. Um, And I think it's really that moment uh, that Hoover's image becomes solidified. This moment actually right after he dies uh, is when he becomes Mm. this much more Mm. universal villain that we still know today. (laughs) One One of the points that really came through clearly to me in the book was the way in which the FBI, as we think of it today, is a New Deal institution. The progressive element is sort of where you start the book, but it seemed to me that the New Deal is really the hinge point before the 60s hinge point that you just talked about. Tell us more about that. 
Well, that's absolutely right. Um, the FBI, which had been the Bureau of Investigation, but in 1935 gets this flashy new name, is essentially what FBI sounds like. It's a New Deal alphabet mm-hmm. agency, right? You've got all those agencies with their three letters, the WPA. Well, that's the FBI. Um, and it was a little bit of a surprise to me to see that it really was the kind of great liberal presidents of the 20th century who made Hoover and who made the FBI. And the first of them was Franklin Roosevelt. He brought the FBI into federal crime fighting in this dramatic new way. You know, this is when FBI agents start to carry guns in a serious way, engage in the kind of violent federal law enforcement, you know, go after people like John Dillinger. Um, FDR urges them to then sell their work to the American public. Uh, and this is when Hoover launches his PR apparatus, becomes a big national celebrity. And at the same time, Franklin Roosevelt is quietly going to J. Edgar Hoover and saying, I know that uh, when we went through those reforms a decade ago, we said we shouldn't do any more political surveillance. But you know what? I'm pretty concerned about fascist groups, communist groups in this country. And Edgar, could you quietly go out and start doing all of this surveillance for me? And that's early on. He's doing it quietly. Their conversations are really interesting because they both agree Congress doesn't need to know about this. The public doesn't need to know too many of the details. Um, and then, of course, the war comes along and, and that does become much more public and much uh, uh, bigger scale. So what do we make of the fact that, as you say, liberal presidents are supporting this and particularly FDR? I mean, in the sense, he's the inspiration for our podcast, right? Our podcast is about how every generation writes a new chapter in our democracy, building on the prior chapters on the history. So in a sense, we sometimes, and we've had some criticism from some listeners for being too (laughs) pro-FDR. So how do we reconcile the positive side of FDR with what you're just describing now? Well, I don't think FDR himself saw any contradiction between these uh, various uses of power. You know, he was uh, a a believer in state power. He was a believer in federal power. Um, He thought he was engaged in a righteous cause. Um, He was not much of a civil libertarian, as it turns out, at least behind the scenes. Um, But in particular, you know, to the degree that, that security is kind of the watch word and the buzzword of uh, of the New Deal, you know, FDR is engaged in uh, trying to bring social security to the nation. He ultimately, you know, uh, is engaged in trying to bring national security, right? That becomes a really important term. And he's also engaged in the use of the federal government to give people security from crime and from concerns about violence in their own communities. And so there's no evidence to me uh, that FDR saw these as contradictory. And I think that we ourselves as historians probably want to think more about the intersections between the social welfare state and, and the security state, which are being built together by the same people 
at the same time. We've seen people talking about that with race and policing in the Johnson administration, but we've seen a little bit less of that I conversation. Agree. I agree. It's a really important point. And in some ways, it you know reinforces that for FDR, the fourth of the four freedoms, freedom from fear, might have been the one he emphasized most. If you think about the Manhattan Project, if you think about the FBI, the OSS, which was our overseas predecessor to the CIA, um, does this change the way you think about the New Deal? I think it does in the sense that uh, it brings these security questions sort of front and center and not just when the war comes along, right? So you weren't going to fight the Second World War without a domestic intelligence service and without a global intelligence service. You just weren't going to do that. Um, but, uh, But the process starts a lot earlier. One of the most fascinating moments for me is actually... Um, the period between 1939 and uh, Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941, uh, which is, of course, a period when the Second World War is raging in Europe, uh, but when the United States is not formally in the war. But you can see all of this institution building going on. In fact, it's when the FBI does its own big ramp up um, is during that period. And it's when Hoover really expands his surveillance of the Communist Party uh, in these years that then, of course, extends into the post-war years. So we've talked about uh, the FBI and and J. Edgar Hoover, if we can call him an institution, uh, as a New Deal institution, as a World War II institution. But it strikes me that it's also very much a Cold War institution, as as you mentioned. To what extent, then, does the FBI become shaped or or stuck in this mold of anti-communism? Well, the book is divided into four different parts. The first part is, you know, Hoover coming of age in Washington. The second part is this whole set of institution building decades, the 20s, 30s and 40s. Um, And then as the war comes to an end, uh, we get this period where Hoover's built his institution. He's built a lot of his power and now he can kind of do with it what he wants. And the thing that he wants to do is go after the communists. So again, That's not a very unusual idea in the 40s and 50s, Um, but Hoover is really out on the cutting edge in in a couple of ways, and I think is by far one of uh, the most important figures of the era in thinking about particularly Cold War domestic politics. Um, He's important because he's actually building a very powerful institution around this anti-communist agenda. He's very powerfully making the case that it's not just about Soviet espionage or about the Communist Party itself, though he's very engaged in those things, but that it is this massive sort of existential struggle that is going to penetrate every part of American life. So he is going around, you know, giving speeches about sending your kids to Sunday school, uh, giving speeches about, you know, why various forms of uh, kind of uh, liberal and left organizing that are not communist in any way, but are in the orbit. And he thinks, you know, liberals and progressives are often the dupes of the communists. And actually, sometimes he was right about that. But uh, he has this very expansive vision. Um, and he's there before a figure like Joe McCarthy. He's there during a figure like Joe McCarthy. And he's there for many years after McCarthy. And so I think it's really the 40s and 50s, the Red Scare, where he he is running his own agenda, 
uh, where he's really at the peak of his power and at the peak of his uh, popularity. Bev, as you know so well, uh, much of the scholarship in recent years has focused on the ways in which uh, the Cold War period that you just described so brilliantly, the ways in which it narrowed the range of possible or acceptable behaviors in American society around questions of race. We see a hardening of Jim Crow in many respects in the 1940s and 50s around economic uh, alternatives. We see a hardening against social democracy in many circles and, of course, around sexuality as well. Yet uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a certainly non-traditional relationship with his lifelong partner. Could you tell us more about that and also how did he manage to promote social traditionalism and yet at the same time act in such a different way? Well, non-traditional is a good word, and I will embrace that. Um, Of course, Hoover's life partner was also his number two man at the FBI, um, and that is a man named Clyde Tolson. And their relationship was really fascinating for me to explore as a historian because, on the one hand, they have a very, very public and open, not only professional partnership, but a social partnership. I mean, they travel together. They have all their meals together. It's widely accepted everywhere that they are. Um, in government, in Washington, in New York, in California, right? Their favorite places to go, uh, that you're going to have them together. In fact, when Lyndon Johnson gets J. Edgar Hoover uh, to come to Austin in 1959, uh, it's not just Hoover. uh, It is Hoover and Tolson coming together. And of course, that's how you would invite Hoover because that's how he traveled. Um, So they really performed this social partnership for each other. um, And it was a very very intimate partnership. It's very well documented. It's very open. And so from newspapers, from um, all sorts of events, I was able to reconstruct that in some detail. But of course, the challenge is, uh, how did they really feel about each other? And were they engaged in, in a sexual relationship? And that's a little harder to get at. I think we'll never know the sexual details of their relationship, just as most biographers don't know the sexual details of their (laughs) subjects. Uh, Yeah, I don't know how far down we would want to go on that road anyway. um, There are uh, some sources that give us a sense of their intimacy, particularly Hoover's uh, private photo Mm. albums. Mm. And I've reproduced in the book a lot of those photos. They're wonderful photos in the book. They really are. um, You know, it's the two of them on the beach together, kind of gazing into the camera together, and you can feel a real intimacy there. Um, so that's that's kind of what we can know. But of course, as you say, uh, then that produces all sorts of other contradictions, which is that Hoover is constantly going around lecturing the mothers and fathers of America about how to raise their children uh, as a childless, quote-unquote, bachelor, um, as the language of the day uh, would have framed him. Um, he is engaged very actively in the policing of other people's sexual lives, and particularly gay people. It was federal policy in the 40s, 50s, 60s that you could not be employed by the federal government if you were gay, uh, and the FBI engaged in the so-called lavender scale um, in a very serious way. And then he's also sending FBI agents out to uh, to kind of tamp down rumors of his own homosexuality. Right. Um, right. And so he's using the FBI very aggressively in that way. So how do you put all of those pieces together? Well, I think sometimes you just have to let contradictions uh, Mm. sit where they are. I mean, it's clear to me that he 
though he engaged in the Lavender Scare, um, and the FBI uh, was responsible for uh, driving many, many people out of government work. Um, He wasn't, in fact, going around making big public speeches on that question in the way that he was Mm. uh, on communism, on crime. Um, And uh, and you can imagine why that would be. I, I guess it does raise the question, and this bleeds us into the 1960s also, right? To what extent is this apparatus when it's created? Does it create its own uh, imperatives for the person running it, where he has to go beyond his own beliefs? I read your chapters, which are very good chapters on the 60s and the FBI's efforts first to call the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement communist And then to flip on a dime, in a sense, when there's no evidence of the communist connection, to then say it's some other kind of conspiracy to undermine government and society. It seems to me they're looking for a reason to undermine this movement, just as one might argue that Hoover is looking in other moments for a reason to encourage conservative behaviors, not that he's necessarily a true believer in that. I don't know if that distinction makes sense to you and how you how you react to that. Well, I do think of him as a true believer um, in the things that he believed in. And so um, there are certainly moments where he's using power cynically. Um, He's a very self-interested person. He doesn't like criticism. He's very self-protective, both about his own personal image and about the kind of institutional autonomy of the FBI. And so all of those things are true. But I think Hoover believed his own ideas. Uh, We could describe it in a slightly different way, but I don't know if you are allowed to use those words on a (laughs) podcast. Um, But I think that he really, you know, believed in his own righteousness. And in some ways, that was kind of his his fatal flaw, was that he believed so powerfully in his own righteousness. And he had almost total control over this vast uh, police apparatus that allowed him uh, to then uh, carry out his, his own ideas and agenda and enforce them. I guess my question to some extent in response to your very thoughtful answer is, you know, to what extent does an organization like this, even if run by someone different, mm-hmm. still do a lot of the same things? I think there are certain organizational imperatives, right? So there wasn't going to be uh, a second world war without a domestic intelligence agency. And that domestic intelligence agency was going to be looking at fascist movements. It was going to be looking at foreign citizens in the United States. And it was going to be looking at the communists, not least because, you know, the Communist Party, in fact, had a pretty deep relationship with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had signed a pact uh, with the Nazis, <laughs> right? So you're going to actually look at these organizations. Um, and the same thing with the Red Scare and with with, with a lot of later things. But I do think that Hoover, you know, put his stamp on uh, on the politics. Um, and I think the fact that he stayed for so right. long really, really makes a difference. So if you look at the CIA, the CIA is up to all sorts of nonsense during these years. Um, but you don't have it kind of concentrated in the power of one man. You just get a bunch of different CIA directors. There's some institutional continuity. There's some changes along the way. So it's it's um, you know Hoover's doing some things that anyone else would have done, but he's doing them in a very particular way. I it's such think. a it's such a revealing contrast because when President Kennedy fires Alan Dulles, who had basically directed the CIA for a decade, one of his concerns is that Alan Dulles has been there too long, which I think is probably why Kennedy would have, if he could have, 
removed Hoover if he had lived longer. Do you agree with that? I think Kennedy didn't like Hoover, for sure. Hoover didn't like Kennedy. Um, and there was even greater animosity between Robert Kennedy and Hoover uh, going both ways, uh, for sure. But, you know, it's not clear that Kennedy ever thought he could fire mm-hmm. Hoover right, for a variety of reasons. I mean, this is one case where Hoover knew an awful lot about what John Kennedy was up to in the bedroom. Um, and so, you know, that is one case where you can see that uh, that probably was weighing pretty heavily. Uh, But Kennedy also says things like, you know what, J. Edgar Hoover is just too popular. And in particular, the Southern Democrats and the conservatives in the Democratic Party liked Hoover too much. And Kennedy wasn't going to take that risk. Um, And the Kennedys actually collaborated with Hoover about a lot of stuff, including uh, surveillance of Martin Luther King. Right. At a time such as ours, when when the ghost of J. Edgar Hoover, the ghost of or this fear of institutional power yielded so personally, and I'm thinking in particular of congressional Republicans today, has come out uh, in such force. Uh, what are the lessons you draw from from studying this man so closely and, and the institution he built? Well, I think today's FBI still bears the stamp of J. Edgar Hoover mm. in all sorts of ways. I mean, both going back to the 30s, the moment that its its essential duties are put in place, right? Law enforcement, and intelligence. Those are still the two things that it does. And they sometimes go together really well. Sometimes they don't. Um, And the internal culture of the FBI, on the one hand, I think a real pride in a certain kind of professionalism, expertise, elite status, you know, the stars of law enforcement. And on the other hand, a pretty deeply conservative internal culture, right? Again, those are, those are, are pretty much what was there in Hoover's day. But we have this really interesting reversal, right? Right. Certainly from the end of Hoover's life, where Republicans and conservatives have turned on the FBI. And then you have all these like leftists and liberals who are thinking, you know, the FBI is going to save the Republic (laughs) from uh, the specter of Donald Trump. So that's been fascinating to watch. The Republican House has now promised that they are launching a massive investigation into the FBI for the first time in in half a decade. Uh, so what do we learn? Uh, first, we learn don't make one person head of the FBI for 48 years. Um, I think, you know, Hoover's career really highlights some of the political dilemmas that the FBI faces now, which is that people expect uh, these kind of objective, nonpartisan, just the facts and the law, ma'am, investigations. But in the midst of like, all of these political pressures, right, just being drawn into the most politicized investigations you can imagine. And I think there's no good way uh, to get around that. In some ways, actually, Hoover's insulated power um, and the amount of power he had amassed allowed him uh, to negotiate some of that pretty well in a way that I think, you know, the weaker FBI directors, formally weaker, um, have some more challenges. Um, and I would say that the last lesson, and maybe the most important one for for a podcast about democracy, is that you can see uh, the ways in Hoover's career that certain techniques and methods and ideas that start you know, aimed at, say, fascists in the 30s. And we might all think, yeah, you know, go FBI, do that. Um, Actually, then, uh, once you have those methods and those abilities, uh, you end up applying them a a lot more widely. So I think there's a kind of basic, you know, revisiting of of civil liberties questions that is always worth returning to. So well said. Uh, We always like to close, Bev, on a question looking forward. 
And for many of our listeners, we're hoping that uh, the historical adventures we go on each week provide them some optimistic and useful uh, hope going forward. What would you say to our young listeners in particular who are interested in the FBI, interested in uh, having a democracy with true rule of law, not law and order as it's often misused, but true rule of law applied equally to all? Uh, what, what would you give them as lessons and things they can do to be a part of the story going forward? One, I would say defend the Freedom of Information Act. Um, I think one of the big differences between uh, you know, Hoover's lifetime and where we are now is this tool that came along in the 60s and 70s that actually allows ordinary citizens to access information about what the government is doing. You know, during Hoover's lifetime, he assumed that uh, he could maintain total control over the FBI's files, that they would never be made public. Um, and of course, once they were made public, it, it created an explosion in his reputation and such. But, you know, FOIA is uh, is constantly under threat. Um, it's really important, not just for knowing uh, about the FBI, but knowing about other things. Um, and the other would be, you know, uh, that a lot of what this book is about is, is a kind of social movement story. Um, it's about the ways that the FBI disrupted social movements. But strangely enough, uh, I think that their uh, strategies for disruption are also pretty useful for people who are interested in social movements and social change. So A, be aware that uh, some of that might, <laughs> that disruption might still be going on. Uh, but B, you know, look at, they said a lot of things like send in informants and make the meetings really long and boring and make them factionalize <laughs> and make them all spread rumors and turn on each other and all these. So there are a bunch of counter lessons in yes. uh, like how not to destroy your movement um, that you can find out That's in, so interesting. In, in Hoover's story. So be prepared. Right. Be prepared. Understand. Zachary, we're going to give you the last word, as, as always. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, does this story of J. Edgar Hoover, a much more complex, a much richer story, and we should say also that Bev's book draws on Freedom of Information Act requests thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, right? A few, a few that I made myself and then ones that have made by, by many researchers and many government servants over a long period of time. So how does this richer history, um, how does it change the way you think about these issues? And is it useful for you or, or, or how do you think about the FBI now? Can I add one more? Please. Generationally? Did J. Edgar Hoover matter to you? Does he have resonance? Hmm. Um, so I know that you may soon be my student <laughs> at Yale University. And if you're in my classes, I'm constantly haranguing my students about J. Edgar Hoover. That may reduce a little bit. Uh, but I just wonder, you know, yeah. what, what, whether this is a name that your, your generation knows and cares about at all. I, I think it's it's fascinating the, 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 the way that your book focuses on, on the personal elements in addition to the policy and, and, and the institutional elements because I think at least for, for someone like me who grew up watching films about this era, not experiencing it myself, I, and I, I think that there's this way in which we approach all of these issues, even these complicated figures that seem so villainous, uh, from a personal perspective, from their personal experiences. And I think there's a power in re-examining that institutional history through a personal lens, particularly as young people who are going to go out into the workforce and be a, be, be institution builders uh, or institution wreckers. Uh, and I think that there's a real lesson from this uh, in, in, in how you can leverage your own power, but also how, how you can be more aware of, of your own personal impact on the institutions you're involved in. But does J. Edgar Hoover resonate with you? Is 
and your generation. Do you know who he is? Do people of your generation? I don't think so. No. <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest, I mean, he, his story is very much a 20th century story. Um, but I think there's value in the story, no doubt. Um, and, and I hope more of my peers are aware of who he, of who he is and what he did. Uh, ostensibly, most of your peers know about the FBI. They know something about the FBI. Right, right. And I do think that there is this, there is this uh, sense of the role of the FBI in our political life, uh, particularly uh, as a generation that came, came of age politically during a, a time when the FBI played a major role in national politics. Um, and there is this sense that, that the FBI serves both as policeman in in both senses of the term and that he he and that the FBI can oftentimes overstep its bounds and enforce the law to the whims of of the governor where and at the same time it can police the the people who 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 are at highest risk of abusing their power right right well and i think one of our recurring themes on the podcast is that institutions have a history yeah. just as individuals and what's really wonderful about bev's book that i recommend to all our listeners is that it does both it really uses a, a fascinating personality, a unique personality, an eccentric personality to really bring out some of the elements of the institutional growth of the FBI and federal power and the American state as such, topics that would otherwise maybe be a little dry become a lot more interesting here. So I encourage our listeners to pick up the book. It's G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. Thank you, Bev, for joining us today. Thanks for having me in Austin. Thank you, Zachary, for your poem. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.